So today we have Investing with Tom. This is our actually third episode of the podcast, but I would say that this is the first real one. Because in the first one, I think I interviewed Guy, and in the second one, Guy interviewed me. I think this is how it goes when you start a YouTube channel and you have very few subscribers. But Tom here uh, has been very kind to accept our invitation, and we are very, very happy to have him here. I guess many of our subscribers will know whom Tom is, but we have been subscriber for, for a while now. And I think your channel, Tom, has more than 40,000 subscribers at, at this moment. Am I, am I wrong? Almost, almost. We're not, not quite there, but um, hopefully okay. soon. Okay. And you've been doing this for, for a while now on YouTube, you were saying, uh, offline, right? Yeah, I have been. Well, yeah, thank, thanks for, for the invite, guys. I'm, uh, I'm honored to be the first, first guest. Um, yeah, I've been doing the YouTube channel for um, probably about four years now, I think. I kind of started out. Uh, please, if, if you haven't seen them, don't go back and watch them. But if you... If you somehow stumbled across a very old video you'll see me like uh holding you know front facing camera of my phone walking through a local park down the road from where we used to live talking about world of 72 and all sorts of stuff and um yeah hopefully come along a, a fair way since then but um it's been a pretty fun journey the last few years i've um met a lot of cool people you know we wouldn't be having this conversation if i hadn't started the youtube channel and um yeah i've learned a fair bit over that time as well for sure. And um, I mean, I remember some of your first videos. I also remember the video that you had to thank your first 100 subscribers. And I think <laughs> yeah. it must be impressive now to have almost 40,000 subscribers. It's, it's just mind blowing. And maybe before starting with the questions that we have prepared also with, with Guy some, some weeks ago, I guess that since we are also just starting, for us, one of the easiest questions to ask you, if you want to answer, of course, is why did you start a YouTube channel? Like, what was the trigger for you to, to start such an adventure? Yeah, sure. I, I would be lying if I said that I hadn't seen other people do it well and turn it into a bit of a side hustle. That was sort of a, a little bit of an underlying motivation for me, I guess. But uh, the main driver that really has kind of kept me going over time is just sort of building up the community and um, kind of selfishly, to be honest, like, uh, you know, when you make a video or you, you know, get in the habit of trying to put out content multiple times per week. It sort of it, it sort of gets me into the habit of continually learning new stuff and um, you know, making sure I'm in a good position to be able to actually record a, a half decent video. And um, you know, that you, you sort of quickly find out whether you understand something or not when you go and explain it to a camera, as I'm sure you guys have found out already on the podcast. Um so, so that's part of it. I mean, the other part of it is just, you know, back in, I think, late 2018, it was when I was getting the channel started, I was getting really interested in investing in the stock market or the share market, as we call it in, in New Zealand. And there's just, a, at least at that time, there was a very, very small uh, kind of community of, uh, you know, share investors. New Zealand, I think, um, objectively has one of the most if not the most expensive real estate market in the world there are a few good reasons for that um there are a few not so good reasons for that and like some of the tax advantages and stuff are, are getting less interesting <laughs> but all that's to say like a lot of people when whenever you mention the word investing in new zealand the only thing that kind of comes into people's heads was was real estate and um i you know had was sitting there a few months into my first job with a few thousand dollars saved up, not in a position to buy real estate. So I was looking for other alternatives, somehow stumbled across 
investing in shares and not long not long after that you know stumbled across warren buffett and sort of went down the rabbit hole from there but starting the youtube channel was a nice way to just get some ideas out there you know share them with i don't know the five people that were watching at the time and um, it's sort of grown grown from there yeah great i think we share some of of these reasons why we started and i think when you're talking about real estate guy can relate quite a bit because he lives in stockholm and maybe guy you can comment a little bit on this at home maybe maybe the situation is not as bad as new zealand i know that it's very critical there but also in stockholm it's a very, very challenging environment for people who are not exposed to assets uh, in other ways. Okay, so I, I understand that uh, so your investing journey started uh, in um, maybe four or five years ago then. That, yeah, that's right. I was, um, I think, so if I started the YouTube channel like 2018, it was probably something like late 2017, maybe mid 2017, I got started and had no idea what I was doing. I had watched a few YouTube videos. Uh, I bought, I think I bought, I put a thousand New Zealand dollars into two different companies, I think at that, that time. And they were just companies I was kind of familiar with. I'm pretty sure they were Ontera, which is uh, like a big, basically milk processing company here in New Zealand, because I work in the agricultural sector. One of them was Fonterra and I'm actually blanking on the name of the other one, but there was a second company and I sort of bought those two individual companies thinking, you know, I kind of know what they're doing. I th- you know, I think Fonterra might have a good year is how I was thinking about it at the time. So um, not really looking any longer term than that. And then a few months later, I did, um, you know, make a, I think, reasonably intelligent decision to put some money into just a market tracking ETF here in New Zealand. So that's how I got started. I'm definitely no longer a Fonterra shareholder and, uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but that was a good decision in the end because it hasn't been that flash for Fonterra shareholders. Um, but yeah, since then I've kind of evolved down like the value investing uh, kind of gone down the value investing path. I stumbled across um, Phil Town, as I'm sure many people many people tend to in that space um, pretty early on. And that was really good for teaching me a lot of the basics about how to get started analyzing companies and some very basic you know, valuation uh, methods. And you, you do kind of evolve from that. And it's it's a great starting framework for people, although it's a little oversimplified in places, I would say. But that's kind of where I got started. And it's just been continual kind of progression from there. If you can tell us like your background, because I guess if you want, because for some people, investing is very daunting. <clears throat> I think on one side, you, you just have to put your money and buy something that can just collapse to zero. So of course, some people are like, no, nah, I'm just gonna stick to cash. But for some other people, at least the, the ones I met, is also difficult to do if you have no kind of mathematical background, like, you know, really the basics. And so I don't know, I, I was just curious to know if you could share with us, like where what were you doing before, or maybe what you're still doing on, on the side that kind of, you know, was kind of the perfect starting point for you to then dive into this world of investing? Yeah, I, I think like um, probably a lot of people that uh, end up with, you know, investing YouTube channels and podcasts and that kind of just become interested in that world. I actually don't have an investing, like a formal finance or investing background at all. Um, I have a degree in agricultural science of all things. So that's um, fairly unrelated to investing. Although I must say as part of that, I have... Um, 
I've come across quite a few wealthy farmers over the years, and the one underlined theme was, you know, they've been invested in this case in a farm or maybe in multiple farms for a very long period of time. Um, some of them have used leverage, you know, along the way to kind of juice up returns on equity and things. And then they've just tried to operate their underlying business as well as they possibly can. And that's actually, you know, the more I think about it over time, probably a pretty good uh, early lesson in how to do well in investing, to be honest. But uh, yeah, no, no formal finance background at all. I still work in the agriculture industry. So the, you know, investing with Tom YouTube and, and podcast and so on is a side thing for me. Uh, at, at this point, um, still work a you know full time day job and that sort of thing. So yeah, that that's kind of my background. I'm not sure if there's any more you want to yeah, ask. About there are that. quite there are quite a few value investors with backgrounds that are very uh, far remote from from finance, right? I mean, Charlie Munger, of course, is a lawyer, but also, for example, Chuck Acri. Uh, I think it's an English major or something like that. Uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, at some point. It, it, you know, Warren Buffett says, uh, I'm, a, I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman and vice versa, right? Something like that. So maybe if, yeah, it, it's, um, it, it's more the business acumen, I guess, that, than anything else. Yeah, I think there's definitely some truth to that. I mean, there's, there's definitely inva- advantages, um, I'm sure, um, and, you know, studying some of this stuff formally. And for me, you know, I an area I've had to work on a fair bit over time is just understanding the basics of how things like accounting work um, and that can vary from country to country so there are some kind of core technical skills that you do have to pick up pick up over time um, but you also don't get sort of unhelpful ideas see it in your head I would say which um yeah tertiary education that sort of thing can can tend to can tend to to do to you so um yeah hopefully brings a different perspective and uh, it's a nice kind of nice coming from a, a different field to have that as a bit of a you know nice circle of competence like um if you're looking at the average business school graduate or um or average person person you know working on wall street or whatever um i'm probably going to know a fair bit more about how different agricultural systems work and how you know farm businesses work and that sort of thing so uh, that's always a nice little advantage to have as well and i'm sure lots of people have you know, um, have advantages in their own little, you know, niches that, that they might have expertise in. So when you started, you, you mentioned that you started investing in some index fund uh, as well as some shares. So what, what what's your view on uh, indexing? What's your view on buying individual stocks? Yeah, I think for the average person, um, just investing in, in index funds over the long term is probably a pretty good way to go, um, pretty much. All the literature would suggest that um, the the tough part, of course, is implementing it over a long period of time because there's going to be uh, there's going to be stretches where the market performs very well, and the average person is going to say, "Well, I should really probably start pouring some more money into this thing because it's working really great." And uh, there'll be other periods of time where it's you know flat or declining for potentially years and years on end, and that's probably the period of time we need to potentially be pouring more money in or at the very least, you know, be consistently contributing. So um, I think, yeah, mathematically, it makes a lot of sense. The the tough bit for people to implement is like more of the mental side with that one, I would say. And it's a good idea to get a really structured plan that 
as as probably as automated as you could make it i i would say is a pretty good way to go so i think that i think that works really well for most people if you're you know if you're a bit of an investment nerd like me and probably all three of us here i would, I would guess um and you're more interested in under, understanding individual businesses and that sort of thing um then i think as long as you've got a sound framework then that can that can be an interesting way to go as well i would try and steer clear of doing what i did you know when i first got started and saying it's very much kind of first order thinking i suppose you know having one little insight about i think this company's going to have a good year or whatever and buying shares that that's kind of what everyone did when they purchased you know zoom in 2020 and 2021 and that eventually went south so you've got to have a a framework around it if you're going to pick individual companies uh, you've also got to have a fair bit of patience as well just to kind of keep turning over rocks i think until a, a good enough opportunity kind of comes across your desk so i i find value investing a really good a really good way to go it kind of keeps keeps you disciplined and now when you have to like research for a new stock how do you do it like where do you start from are there some stock screeners that you use for example do you get inspiration from i guess you know magic formula or or those kind of others let's call them screeners how how's your uh, process yeah um from time to time i look at those things you know magic formula or the acquirers multiple from toby carlisle would be another one uh, although i i kind of just look at it every few months out of interest more than anything rather than actual rather than actually going in there and really trying to find some interesting stock idea uh, i think most investment ideas can come from all sorts of different places for me you know it might be a value investors club write-up i do actually spend a decent bit of time on there um maybe it's some other investor i've got a lot of respect for you know buys it and it turns up in the 13f um you know maybe it's one of the guys on you know my on our punch card uh, investing you know live stream sort of group maybe one of those guys talking about something interesting it can come from all different angles so the the way that ideas initially get to me can vary pretty widely uh, i guess the process i go through from there uh, gets a little more regimented so i <clears throat> excuse me i still use the basic kind of fill town you know for him uh, very high level checklist of understand the business or meaning moat management margin of safety that's kind of the i guess the 4m checklist he goes through and i still use that general structure um so yeah I, I kind of start out trying to understand as best i can how the business works how the industry works what the competition might be like um uh, from there it kind of naturally flows into do i think this company has a sustaining kind of competitive advantage over other similar companies in the industry or is you know the a few years of super normal profits that they might have just had is that going to get competed away over time that's sort of the question i'm trying to answer there uh then it comes down to management capital allocation and then valuation that's sort of the general framework that i go through within uh, with some companies i might breeze through that really quickly like if you know if i was looking at apple for example that's a that's a business that a lot of people know pretty well um i'm a customer of apple probably will be for a long time so that some of them you can figure out quite quickly others are more challenging and it you know could be a multi-week process or something 
Um, but that's the that's the general framework. And then right at the end, uh, something I've implemented in the past maybe year or so is an investment checklist. So that's really just to pull me up on anything that I might have missed. Um, mistakes I've seen other people make over time are in there. Mistakes that I've made before are in there. So just to make sure I, I don't make the same mistakes again. And uh, oftentimes I can breeze through a lot of parts of that checklist and then there might be one or two things I haven't looked at. You know, maybe I haven't looked at what the management compensation structure looks like, for example, to see if it's aligned with shareholders. Or uh, maybe I haven't even bothered checking whether they've been diluting shares or, you know, that that type of stuff that is, for me at least, easy to miss. You know, checklists will vary depending on the person because we all miss different stuff and pick up different stuff. But that's a long answer to your question, but that's the general framework I tend to use. I was curious, actually. Uh, so when you go through all this process, you know, and, and sometimes one gets attached to, to an idea and sometimes you have to kill, you know, your, your idea and say, okay, no, maybe maybe this wasn't a good investment. This is not going to be a good investment, so I, I'm not going to buy. Then maybe the result of this is that uh, you don't buy, let's say, many stocks. So typically, do you have target uh, in, in terms of the number of stocks that, uh, that, that you want to own? Or how do you, how do you deal with the, the portfolio in, in terms of you know, the concentration of the portfolio? Yeah, sure. It's a good question. I think, I guess, starting at first principles, like I, I would like to have more money and my better ideas than, and, you know, as, just like the classic Buffett saying, I'd rather have more money in my first or second best idea than my 20th best idea. So um, I agree with that general framework, although uh, I also uh, recognize that uh, there's only one Warren Buffett and uh, I'm probably a little more prone to making mistakes would be an understatement. Um, so, you know, a degree of diversification is essential, really. There's some kind of practical things that come into it for me. Like I just don't think that I can keep up with a large number of companies as you know in depth as I would like to keep up with um, the companies in my portfolio so that leads me to maybe an upper limit of like 10 or 12 stocks although I must say I've never actually gotten that high um, at least at least yet um, but that's you know that's kind of where I'm thinking I'd probably max out just because I think I've probably got most of the benefits of diversification by that point and there's you know diminishing returns going from 12 to 20 to 30 or whatever um in terms of diversification and it just gets harder to kind of keep up with so that's sort of where i'm landing i don't know that i'd want to go less than like four or five stocks or something and i'd have to have some pretty serious levels of conviction at that point to do that um or at least be fully invested. Maybe I'd have four or five stocks, but have some cash on the sidelines or something like that, you know. Um, so that's sort of how I generally think about it. Um, you know, I'm 27 at the moment, so um, hopefully a long time to invest yet. <laughs> and uh, I, I do like the general sort of um, punch card, you know, Buffett approach of finding one or two new ideas a year. And uh, over time that turns into a you know, more and more well-developed kind of portfolio. So I'm fairly comfortable being a little more concentrated at the moment while I'm, you know, a little younger. And uh, my annual savings are still a very meaningful amount of, you know, additions to my portfolio. And it's not like I'm managing hundreds of millions of dollars or something. And, uh, you know, my day job is adding very little. So uh, over time, 
again, that sort of dilutes down the current holdings. And so you can sort of tend to, you can tend towards concentration a little more, I would say, and, and still be all right. Like maybe I just have one question on that, like, because of course, like, I guess you have to be in a peace of mind kind of state, like, because you have to kind of trust, of course, your value investing procedure to put all of your money in, in 10, as you said, to 12 stocks. And I guess that for most people, this is scary. So even if they have done their math right, let's say, or their analysis right, they, they might <coughs> still have this break saying, no, you, you, sh you should just maybe buy 20 stocks and, and have more diversification. Uh, but this is great. I mean, the fact that you can do it, uh, like, you know, the big ones, like, you know, Warren and the others, this is just great. And um, it's a very good answer for me. On top of that, maybe another, another question is like, do you care a lot about dividend stocks for the moment? Or does your analysis just focus on the company in itself, whether or not they're paying a dividend? Of course, if they're paying a dividend, maybe this is telling something on, on the growth. But, you know, what, what, what do you think about this? Yeah, I guess I would start my answer to that question by saying if a company I own does pay a dividend, I, it just gets reinvested back in the portfolio. I don't need um, dividends to pay the bills, you know, day to day or anything like that. So that that's sort of the first thing. Um, so I would prefer if a company is able to retain a high proportion of their earnings and reinvest it at high rates. Um, you know, I did a video about uh, I did a, bit, a video about Charlie Munger's investment in Costco recently, and that's been a really good example of of a business that's been able to generate cash each year, redeploy it, and in Costco's case, opening new Costco stores and just continuing to kind of push that snowball down the hill, and it grows greater and greater earnings power over time, which pushes intrinsic value and share prices up and so on. So I would prefer to be in businesses like that where there's a good, you know, a good um, kind of place for capital to go. Although a couple caveats to that, like it has to earn a high return if, if they're reinvesting capital at 5% or something, that's not that interesting to me. That's probably the point at where that's probably the point at which they should either look at sheer buybacks or or paying a dividend and that um, choice should really be determined by the relationship between market value and intrinsic value for that particular company you know if the if the stock's undervalued then buybacks might make more sense if it's not then dividend is is something that that might make sense so i don't mind if companies pay dividends i would actually prefer them not to really if they've got a good destination for that cash although um yeah, it's probably not a very typical answer for most investors, but I think if you <laughs> if you understand, you know, sort of the inner workings of capital allocation and and kind of growing underlying earnings power, that's a good way to go. Yeah, there's actually a, a video that we like by Terry Smith, by uh, Fun Smith here in in Europe, mm -hmm. where he's giving this presentation to his uh, shareholders, I guess, and he's showing the uh, the plot of the return on total capital over time of two companies. I think one is WD40 and the return on total capital is around 30-40% and the other is Coca-Cola which is maybe around 15% and then he's asking them which company they would put all their money in and then you know people just vote and then he says oh wait a second I just didn't give you enough information to answer my question I didn't tell you that WD40 can't basically reinvest 
the earnings and still obtain their returns to the capital, whereas Coca-Cola can. And so it really shows beautiful how that 15% works, the snowball effect, as you said. And uh, I think for us in Scandinavia, yep. the, the question about dividends might be a little bit trickier because we can't reinvest them right away without paying taxes on them. So maybe depending also on your tax residency, that can be, I don't know, that, that, that can be a different, different answer. For example, just an, another interesting thing is that, for example, if you, if you are in Denmark and you want to do indexing, here they tax you on unrealized gains every year. So, okay, I understand that you are a sort of a late Buffett and Munger kind of investor. It's, you're, not very, you're not focused on deep value, right? On, on these uh, super low P cases, but, but more on like high quality businesses with earnings power and uh, possibility to reinvest at high rates. Yeah, um, I, I'm still open to, to both, I would say. I think, you know, the ideal is like just to be Charlie Munger and buy Costco in early 2000 and sit back for the next 20 years and let it ride. <laughs> I'd like to find more of those. So if anyone knows um, knows where those live, let me know. But um, no, I, I think it's not always possible to get a portfolio full of those things. And that sort of pushes you back towards, you know, the 50 cent dollars of, of the world. So I still have some of them in the portfolio. I don't mind them at all, really. Uh, there's there's some things you have to watch out for. And, you know, with high-quality businesses, you know, as time goes on, like time tends to be your friend. And if you get surprises out of those businesses, they tend to be good surprises. And uh, with the $0.50 cent dollars, oftentimes it's, it's the opposite story. So you have to be a little careful. Um, but I, I still like them. You know, I still have like something like zero-touch growth properties in the portfolio, for example, which is um, basically just a, a discount to net asset value kind of investment idea. It's pretty pretty basic in that, in that way. And the capital allocation is becoming a little clearer with that one too. So I'm, I'm still open to, to those sorts of things. Um, you know, the long-term compounders, they can offer really good kind of long-term returns and you can still have investments where you might only have like a three or five year time horizon with some of the 50 cent dollars um, and you might get out of it quicker if if the price re-rates even sooner than that so um, I'm open to all sorts of different things. I have uh, at least other two questions that now are popping in my mind so one is on uh, macro so you know that now there are a lot of uh, talks about recession and and yeah the possibility of a downturn do you care about it or in terms of the portfolio i mean or you just continue to evaluate businesses and when they are good buys you just buy yeah i i think it was jake taylor of the value after hours podcast who said something like um you know micro is like eating your dinner and eating your vegetables and then macros like eating dessert and you've got to be careful how much macro you pay attention to um so i find it kind of interesting probably less interesting than a, than a lot of people do um i think i think it it's important to have a general understanding of what's going on macro or macro wise like um if you weren't aware that there's currently a lot of inflation and interest rates are generally going up then um should probably pay a little more attention but um beyond that i i don't i personally for my strategy at least don't think it's that useful to dive a whole lot deeper than that really um and then what i try to do is just go through the mental exercise of how these general kind of big trends 
potentially going to impact investments that I have. So, you know, going back to Seritage, for example, if if interest rates go up a lot, that means that um, it's probably going to be a pretty aggressive kind of downward force on real estate values. And all of a sudden, the gap between um, net asset value and market value might not be as wide, potentially. So I'm just going through those types of general ideas, like how, how might it impact each of the individual companies in my portfolio. I'm not... I'm not really making major adjustments to the portfolio as, as a result of macro stuff. I, I I think predicting what the future's gonna look like for an individual business is hard enough and um, you know, trying to impact what what the economics might look like for a country or for the whole world is way, way harder than that. And um there's much smarter people than me that can't figure it out. So um, yeah, that that's where I tend to land on the whole thing. And actually the the other a question that I had in mind was about the Berkshire shareholder meeting. Can you can you tell us something about that? Yeah, I've watched the Berkshire shareholder meetings online for the past four or five years, I guess, and uh, thought it would always be really cool to go. So managed to get over the get over there this year with a couple of um, couple of friends who also have uh, YouTube channels, um, New Money and Hamish Holder on on YouTube. Um, so yeah, it was a cool experience. I had never been to the US even before that, so it was a very long flight, but uh, we, we eventually got there. And uh, it was just great to kind of get there in person. We really decided that we should probably just go this year, you know, while um, while Warren and Charlie are still there. I hope they have many more Berkshire meetings in them yet, but um, time's not on their side, I would say. So it was very cool to get there. I was kind of surprised about how many how many kind of surrounding events there were with the Berkshire meeting. Like I thought it would just be kind of the main Berkshire event, but there were a lot of surrounding events and meeting greets and brunches and all sorts of things. So it was cool to kind of get get to those events um, and, you know, just like see super investors kind of wandering around that you've, <laughs> you've been, you know, following for years and years was kind of a surreal feeling. Um, <clears throat> I think I've told the story on, on a couple of different podcasts, but I was, um, I'd just been to a dinner, I think the night before the Berkshire meeting, I was waiting for an Uber with uh, William Green, who was also waiting for an Uber. And he was kind of annoyed because I must've booked it slightly before him and there's not many Ubers in Omaha. So I'd stolen his Uber. And then, uh, as we were waiting for that, like Bill Gates just wandered in through the lobby past us. So I was like, what is life? You know, what, what's, what's going on right now? So it was, it was just, Lots of kind of surreal events going on, a bit like that. And um, yeah, so if anyone can can possibly get there, I would highly, highly recommend it. It was a lot of fun. And is it easy to talk to them? Like, is this how you met Guy Spear or did you did you meet him somewhere else? Uh, yeah, I, I'd met Guy. Um, we'd spoken online a couple of times. So I sent Guy, and this isn't on YouTube or anything, but... I had sent Guy some information about uh, an incoming CEO to one of his portfolio companies. I just kind of found some information I thought he might find interesting. I was invested in that company at the time as well. And to my surprise, a couple of weeks later, he replied and said, hey, Tom, thanks for sending this through. Happy to talk about it. Um, you know, uh, my assistant, Chantal, will, um, you know, sort out a time for us to have a Zoom call. So, um, yeah, out of nowhere, I was having this hour or hour and a half, I think it was, you know, Zoom call, just kind of talking about this company and all sorts of other things with Guy Spear. So that was a bit of a surreal experience. Um, 
yeah and then uh, during that call asked him to come on the podcast which um managed to get that across the line eventually that kind of led to him inviting me to his aquamarine fund dinner which is usually just for aquamarine shareholders which i am certainly not one of those people but uh, uh that was very kind of him uh, yeah went along to to the to the fund dinner and met some of his investors and um you know other kind of friends of guy and then he came on for a second podcast we'd, we'd actually hoped or more i had hoped to record something with him in omaha but his schedule is just insane when he's when he's over there he had a lot of different events on like uh him and monish i think have a brunch maybe with uh i think her name's debbie which is uh, warren buffett's assistant so they have a brunch each year he's got um this barbecue with matthew peterson i'm not sure if you guys know matt matt peterson or not but um he runs uh peterson capital management i th- i think is the fund and he's a good good friend of uh guy spears so matt hosted a barbecue he usually co-hosted every year with guy and guy was so busy he couldn't even make it along to that so um he had a lot going on but um it was it was cool to to meet him over there i think a lot of those investors are they just get swarmed like uh lee lu for example was in the row just across from us in the actual meeting and once people kind of figured out um that hey that's actually lee lu uh he was just getting bombarded with people Monj probably was a bit the same but um yeah was lucky enough to get at a time not exactly one-on-one but closer to it with some of these people and um yeah they're just they're just normal human beings really um but it, it all does feel a bit surreal when when you're talking to them yeah i mean must be great i mean also because working in other fields uh, i mean i work in academia for example sometimes it's way harder in my field to meet you know a very well-renowned professor and it seems that somehow these personalities in a way are closer to us like they're much more open to exchange and critics and this is also, I think, what's attracting us to to this world. Uh, of course, there's uh, a money-related thing that you can become wealthier. But there's also, at least, I mean, we've never been to these events, but it seems that there's a, a very nice community of people that are just helping each other and everyone sharing what they can share uh, for the others to, to grow yeah. and, and learn. Yeah, I think you're right. I, th- I think particularly in the Buffett and Munger world, everyone has a very long-term focus. No one really feels like they're competing against one another, I don't think. Um, maybe in some other areas of the investment world, that wouldn't be the case. But um, yeah, everyone's everyone's trying to head in the same direction and <laughs> we're all trying to get better. So uh, it's a really, really good kind of community to, to be a part of. And at that time, I, I wasn't on Twitter, but I think that the guy was already following you. And I think he was following your trip all the way from, from New Zealand to Omaha, where you were, I think, sharing <laughs> yeah. some pictures or where you had yeah, some connections. That. And... Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that, is, that is true. It's, um, yeah, not sure. He must have been really bored. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, I think it's inspiring for, you know, many different people to just see that it's possible. You, I mean, you can do it, so... Uh, maybe you you also inspire other people right maybe you know guy inspire uh, inspires you and and you inspire others and and this is uh sort of compounding goodwill you know or compounding inspiration it's it's very cool yeah 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 i'm glad to hear that i i hope that i hope that's the case i mean i i don't know at all if you trace it back far enough it probably starts to someone starts with someone like 
Brandon from the New Money YouTube channel because you know I see people like that. Um, gets me to start the YouTube channel and um, you know hopefully other people have seen what I've done and got a little bit of inspiration from that. And yeah, I guess it's just a weird other form of a snowball, I, I suppose. I, I don't think I've done really anything particularly special, but um, other than just try and share ideas as honestly as I can. But um, it is cool to see where it's gone. And maybe just to close, uh, talking more about the community and your YouTube journey so far. So how do you feel about it? And what's your view about the future? Like, where do you see your YouTube channel in, in a few years? And uh, also, has it been hard like to go from, from zero to the subscribers and the, the community that you have now? Because we do see, for example, that, you know, we are very, very small and we started, you know, when basically no one was was watching our videos and now we see that little by little we start to to get some views and especially you know we reach out to someone like you and you say oh yes i'll i'll come and talk to you guys so this is this is just amazing but how was it for you and where do you see your channel in the in the next years or the next months yeah sure it was um it definitely felt like a slow start um when i first got going but i always felt like there was at least a little bit of momentum starting to build up um you know just to put it in perspective like i i when i started the youtube channel i didn't like you know share it on facebook or anything like that i kind of just put it out there in the world and didn't really tell many people about it uh my girlfriend was probably about the only one that knew about it at the time really and um i uh i kind of just kept doing that i think i was doing one video a week or something and might have occasionally done done two some something like that and it took me um took me six months i think almost exactly to hit 100 subscribers so it was a fairly you know slow road to get there and you know i'd kind of wake up wake up in the morning check my phone and if i'd gained one subscriber overnight that was like a massive win and uh you know i i kind of sort of distinctly remember going from something like 108 subscribers to waking up the next day and having 106 and it like someone had, it was like someone had stabbed me in the heart you know it was, it was, they were they were you know they're, they're very precious particularly when you when you're first getting going so it, it is a slow road but i think it was six months to 100 another six months to a thousand and then another six months to ten thousand or something it grew quite quickly at at that point um and you do go through sort of growth spurts like the growth of my channel slowed down a lot this year but uh, from time to time have videos do really well and then you suddenly kind of get on the next little burst so um yeah that's kind of how i got to where it is now i guess in terms of the future i kind of just want to keep um chipping away very consistently i definitely like to up the production quality a little bit um where i where i can i think so again someone like brandon at new money's done an exceptional job of that recently he's brought in i think he's just recently hired his second in-house editor and the production quality is through the roof on on that channel now so um i don't see myself getting to that level <clears throat> in the immediate future but uh, i'd like to definitely step that up and um yeah kind of get it to a point financially i think where i can i can put more of my time towards that and maybe um free myself up a little bit from my current day job would would be nice to do eventually uh and that should be kind of a tailwind for continuing to grow it as well so um not a whole lot of specific timelines on that really but that's that's the direction i'm i'm keen to head 
Uh, great. I mean, because we, we, we are starting and we are doing it in two people. And for us, we, we do see that there's quite some work that you have to put in. And for you and Brandon, like other people doing it just on yourself, it must be really a ton of work. And as subscribers, I mean, we do appreciate it. And also as YouTuber, we do appreciate it to have you guys as an example. Uh, Guy, do you have any other questions or should we just uh, let Tom enjoy his morning? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I just would like to thank Tom for his kindness and, uh, and to be an inspiration. I really enjoyed it and uh, it was really fantastic. Thank you, Tom. No, th th thanks for the invite. It was great talking with you guys and um, yeah, be best of luck going forward. I hope, uh, I hope you can beat if you can beat my uh, six months to 100 subscribers, that, that, that'd be very cool. Uh, and maybe a, if you can beat a year to 1,000, then you, you'll know in the back of your head that you're far ahead of what, you know, what Tom's doing. So there's a couple targets for you, maybe. Yeah, I mean, we'll see how it goes. And I think for us also recognizing that each one of those numbers is actually a person uh, makes it even more important, yeah. right? When you see plus one, there's like a person that has decided to subscribe to your channel and is giving you feedback and and following. It's just it's just great. So again, thank you. We were so happy when you accepted the invitation. Guy was uh, emailing me. I was like, oh, Tom accepted. So I was like, oh, wow, that's great. So we are really really happy that we finally did it. And uh, I guess we wish you a very nice day. All the best of luck for your channel and for your life. You just moved, right? So I hope everything is going well in your new house. Yeah, yeah. Th thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. Bye-bye. It was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Thanks.